0: My name is Jenny Morgan. I'm the board president for Baltimore Greenworks, and I'd like to welcome you all here on this very hot evening. Um, we're going to do a, a one or two things before um, our guest speaker, Tom Wilbur, starts. Um, first of all, I just wanted to thank Judy Cooper and the Pratt Library again for being our partners. Um, this speaker the sustainable speaker series has been very popular and a great partnership for us so um, as we continue into what's going to be our tenth year this year we're very excited about that. Um, first I'm going to introduce you to Julie Gabrielli Gabrielli which most who most of you know and she's going to give you a little um, what is it a little commercial a little trailer for her new movie that she's doing so.
1: Hi, Uh, thanks for um, having me, Jenny, and uh, I just want to thank Baltimore Greenworks for helping to co-sponsor this film, which is just in pre-production, but I have some iPhone clips of some of the people who are going to be in it, and it'll self-introduce itself, but if you have any questions of me afterwards, there are some flyers out there, and I'll be standing at the end of the table on the left, and be happy to talk to you more about it. This film showcases a dozen people who have an inspiring vision of the future and are changing the world through their work. It's a tool to cultivate hope and produce positive change. It's our way of lighting a candle rather than cursing the darkness. Imagine how their passion and vision will shine through in the hands of a talented filmmaker.
2: I'm helping America to thrive by bringing people together to create a beautiful city, green lush neighborhoods make people feel great about where they live.
3: We are helping America to thrive by making a serious investment in education. Our whole concept is to roll out the red carpet for those folks who are doing the most important work in our cities, oftentimes underpaid and oftentimes underappreciated. We're helping
0: America thrive by fulfilling the preamble of the Constitution to
1: have justice by and
4: for the people. We're helping America thrive by bringing a college preparatory morning school environment to
5: students who are underserved in communities across the state of Maryland. I'm helping America thrive by revegetating
6: cities. We put plants on top of buildings, on walls, and try to increase the number of plant cells So,
3: we're at the Baltimore Center for Green Careers, and we partner with a training program that trains underserved Baltimore residents to be the retrofit installers, working on your homes, improving the quality of
7: your
1: home, and saving you money and energy. That I have been doing for years and years and years, getting people to dance just to sort of uplift themselves, using an old traditional way of staying positive by dancing, dance medicine. Thank you, TiVo, for all your support. Sure, it's a
3: pleasure. Thank you for what you guys are doing.
0: I'm going to introduce our speaker for the evening, Tom Wilbur. He's from Binghamton, New York, and he is a journalist. He's been working for the last 17 years at the Binghamton Press. And um, he's written a book on fracking, and everyone was so interested in the subject when we had um, our speaker here last fall, Josh Fox, that we decided that uh, this would be a great continuation of the conversation, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for coming.
6: Thank you, Jenny, and thank you to the folks at... Baltimore Greenworks and to Judy and, and the people at Pratt Library for having me here tonight and thank you everybody for coming. I think everybody appreciates that the country is entering a critical time in the history and our energy policy is at the center of it. The shale gas controversy is a wake-up call for the public and people have become more focused than ever in the role of carbon and natural gas in particular. In the future of the world's energy supply. It's been a contentious and polarizing debate, and I see that not as a bad thing. It's really the way government should work. It's not an easy thing, but it's the price of freedom. I'm going to uh, try to recap some of the remarkable story of the shale gas boom in Pennsylvania in the southern tier of New York and the rise of the anti-fracking movement and give you my thoughts on how these and other factors might play out regionally and nationally, and also the impacts here on the Susquehanna River uh, watershed and the Chesapeake Bay. But first, since the next hour or so I'll be talking about the importance of full disclosure. I will share my personal views on the debate about fracking. As a journalist, I have not taken a side for or against. And I often have to explain this to activists who see my stories sympathetic to people who came out on the short end of the deal or which to attempt to expose the land rush for what it is rather than what is cracked up to be as a sign that I am on their side but because I'm not explicitly on their side regarding the issue of fracking it does not mean I am against them and the same holds true for the energy industry while I have no formal position on fracking I am very passionate about transparency and full disclosure, and my fight is for the public's right to know, and this often happens to put me on the same side of the fence as anti-fracking activists, some of whom I have counted on as sources in attempts to lift the public relations veil from the industry. I subscribe to an old-school brand of watchdog journalism made popular by Joseph Pulitzer, where the role of a journalist is to aggressively pursue matters of public interest and to serve people lacking the wherewithal of institutional power and influence to make their voices heard. That sounds like a liberal agenda, and I have no apologies for it, because the old-school principles of journalism, at least as Pulitzer held them up, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, to paraphrase, are indeed liberal in at least one sense. That is, the free media, as a voice for the people without influence and wealth, has traditionally been an agent for social change and even revolution in free societies, a notion that has been a hallmark in this country since the days of Ben Franklin. As an old-school journalist, pre-Fox News, my reporting tends to sympathize more with the landowners and general population living over shale gas reserves than the companies trying to extract from them although I have not closed my mind to the possibility that there are good companies operating out there and that large American corporations are often run by people who are capable of acting and often do act in the best interest of the public. I'm learning new things every day and I open to the possibilities that my personal views are not infallible. I understand the argument on both sides. The strongest argument for fracking and the larger issue of onshore drilling is in my view that we're all happy consumers of cheap abundant energy and if we don't like fracking we might want to think about changing our ways or at least giving more thought about what happens when we flip a light switch turn on the air conditioner crank up the heat or fire up the oven. We like the comforts of the, the mineral the extraction industry allows us as long as we don't have to look too closely where they come from The strongest argument against fracking is that it's the product of an industry long obscured by a glossy public relations image of itself. And this industry is rarely held accountable, fully accountable, of the problems it causes due to the lack of reporting requirements that other industries face, and all kinds of exemptions from environmental laws. The industry's initial reaction to controversy almost always is to hold itself blameless, and when that doesn't work, distance itself from problems. I'm interested in the dialogue and the process in which this story is unfolding and it has been a fascinating story. The Marcella Shale as you probably know has been billed as a bonanza and there was a time before fracking became a bad word that those who knew what it was were enthusiastic about it. People were sold on the prospects of natural gas as a means to cleaner energy national independence and economic revival. These are the arguments in my view oversimplified and inflated, that still cannot be discounted. Shale gas also offered a promise of untold fortunes for the working farmer facing tax debts or trying to save for retirement. The Marcellus covering 95,000 square miles in the heart of Appalachia in upstate New York is coveted as the grand prize. One of the world's largest energy reserves in close proximity to the world's greatest energy markets, including the metropolises in the mid-Atlantic and northeastern states. Beneath the Marcellus is the Utica, which has an even larger footprint and which also carries extraordinary expectations. And you probably have seen some of these slides before. This is the general footprint of the Marcellus and the darker colors are the areas that are the thickest and potentially the most productive zones. Here again is the footprint of the Marcellus uh, and the light area in the middle like the core of an apple, is considered the drilling fairway. And that is the area with the most potential for initial gas production where drilling uh, south of the New York State border has begun. And what will happen uh, typically with a a play like this is the um, landmen and the operators will go for the the, the low-hanging fruit on the tree, the easiest to get, the easiest to lease, and the most productive. And that would be the area within the fairway. And here we have the Marcellus footprint and um, the Susquehanna River Basin uh, and I couldn't get these neatly to overlie each other but I think you can get an idea that the Susquehanna River Basin is indeed right in the center of the drilling fairway. Geologists have known for a long time that these shale contain rich concentrations of gas but there have been no way to economically extract it. Now they can by marrying two technologies, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. Hydraulic fracturing, as the industry is always quick to point out, has been around for a long time. But it's been a minor part of of petroleum or shale gas or or natural gas extraction. And uh, traditionally, wells have been drilled um, vertically in geographically limited areas. So natural gas has been around for a long time, fracking has been around for a long time, drilling has been around for a long time in, in parts of northwestern Pennsylvania and uh, in western New York. Now, to get to these traditional geographically limited areas, um, drillers often had to go through the Marcellus Shale, which is a mantle of bedrock that extends under three, three to three or four states, parts of Maryland, Pennsylvania, a big part of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, uh, parts of Ohio, when you include the Utica as well in upstate New York. And for a long time this was just a nuisance. They knew there was a lot of gas locked up into this rock, but there was no feasible way to extract it. And then in uh, the 1990s, as the price of natural gas started to rise, that always encourages development, of course. You had in the in Texas, the Barnett Shale. And there was a company that pioneered this idea that we could drill down to the point of one of these, bed, these shale bedrocks, which are like a pancake, they're relatively thin. And then instead of going through it, we can drill right along the length of it. And that would ma- maximize the way we can extract gas. But the other thing they had to do is figure out how to break that bedrock apart to release gas. And that was done through fracking, which involves, as we know, a chemical solution of sand and various, various chemicals to stimulate production. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. The, the, the long and short of that, I think, is the industry said, oh, no, these chemicals are fine. There's nothing in them you have to worry about, when in fact they contain a lot of toxic chemicals. And they're exempt from ha- hazardous um, waste handling laws. And also uh, they're exempt from the Clean Drinking Water Act. The Clean Drinking Water Act essentially says anybody that puts stuff into the ground, we need full disclosure and the EPA has to regulate that. You can't just go ahead and put anything into the ground, except when you want to frack. Then you can put millions of chemical solution into the ground. The EPA doesn't have anything to do with it and we don't have to know what it is. And that is uh, uh, commonly known as the Helbert loophole because it was passed in 2005. As the 2005 Energy Act, and um, when Dick Cheney was vice president uh, under the Bush administration, and Dick Cheney, I think as we know, has a lot of ties to Halliburton uh, prior to his uh, his office. So the use of hydraulic fracturing for unconventional wells now unconventional means shale gas, right? Conventional means the old traditional type of drilling. Unconventional means shale gas. It raises a new set of environmental problems because of the volumes of water needed for each well, several million gallons, compared to a few hundred thousand gallons needed for a conventional well, and problems with handling and disposing of like amounts of waste, including brine, heavy metals, and unknown chemical solutions in the fracking fluids. Fracking in unconventional wells require unconventional means, including the proprietary chemical solution. This includes acids, biocides, anti-corrosives, and lubricants, to recreate what's known in the industry as a slick water frack, which is needed to overcome the resistance to getting the solution at 10,000 pounds per square inch to flow into small spaces a mile below the surface and another mile away from the well with enough force to shatter the rock. By the way, can everybody hear me? I'm moving back and forth with a microphone. And if, if, if I drift too far away, raise your hand, Okay. Most of Pennsylvania and the southern tier of New York, including the Binghamton area where I live, sits over the richest Marcellus pay zones. zones. Communities in the southern part of New York and and further upstate also sits over other formations, including the Utica Shale. These are collectively known as stacked horizons. And here, here, by the way, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, flip to this earlier, is our horizontal drilling. Um, And this has been depicted in a lot of ways in a lot of different media so people might be familiar with it by now. These are stacked horizons so we have the Marcellus shale and we have the Utica shale and we also have a lot of conventional formations sandwiched in there. And uh, getting back to this issue about the drilling fairway, drillers are most likely to start drilling when they can produce a conventional formation and explore another formation. So when you have multiple formations over uh, one another these are also known as pay zones, you have a lot more incentive to drill. Uh, this pack happens to be in upstate New York, which is in, near the headwaters of the Susquehanna River. Their Marcellus has been pitched as a bonanza for landowners, especially third and fourth generation farmers who, due to economies of scale, can no longer sustain the small family farm. Many of them feel Income from producing energy from their land not only serves national interests, but will also revitalize rural communities. But the prospects of large scale development driven by fracking are not all good. As everybody in this room, I think, is, is aware of, especially if Josh Fox has already given a presentation here, which I know he has. In fact, some believe them to be bad, very bad. In terms of scale, intensity, and impact, shale gas development is unlike any kind of extraction activity the region has seen. The hit and miss speculation that produced unconventional wells clustered throughout Western New York and over centuries would give way, and, and throughout Pennsylvania, would give way to systematic and widespread unconventional development over the course of decades. Unlike wells drilled in Western New York for geographically limited pockets of gas, Shale gas unfolds on a grid of infrastructure covering towns, counties, and states. To critics, shale gas prospecting in the vast rural tracts in New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, and Maryland lends new meaning to the term factory farm. Full-scale shale gas will, they believe, industrialize the landscape, load countrysides with tankers and heavy equipment, scar the land with swaths cut for pipelines and well pads, pollute water, produce unmanageable volumes of waste, including brine, heavy metals, radioactive debris, and they cite examples where this has happened in Pennsylvania. Impact to vital watersheds are paramount concerns. Since some of the most lucrative shale gas zones are under the greatest freshwater circulatory system in the country, the Susquehanna River Basin, and the overlapping Delaware River watershed to the east are the heart of the network of streams, ponds, lakes, wetlands, and rivers encompassing 41,000 square miles in parts of New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. In addition to sustaining a thriving ecosystem, the watersheds provide drinking waters to millions of people, including residents in New York City and Philadelphia and other major metropolitan areas, and support industries and economies throughout the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. The Susquehanna River watershed alone drains 27,510 square miles, covering half the land in Pennsylvania, as well as portions of New York and Maryland, and provides half of the Chesapeake Bay's fresh water flows. It also feeds 4,582 direct water-dependent businesses in the basin, ranging from textile mills to wood products manufacturing. Gaging the risk to this and other water resources is central to the, the debate over what to what extent fracking should be counted on as the answer to our country's energy needs. Now, some will argue that the issues that have come to characterize the shale gas debate are driven by institutional interests. And this is true. But as a reporter, I've, been, I've seen how the grassroots activism has made a huge impact on the discussion. It was grassroots involvement in countless towns meetings crowded with concerned citizens that led to a, a review of the impacts of shale gas development and hydro fracking in New York State. And I'll emphasize this, uh, and I emphasize this in the book, this is really a story about and for the people. And um, writing for, for a daily newspaper, you're, and this is getting back to the old Pulitzer document that you're writing to that uh, very popular um, audience, that base audience. You're not writing for sources or for institutions. And whenever you can enable the people to somehow have a say in government and, and use information to help govern themselves, I think that's critically important. So if there's one lining in all of this, one shining lining, is the idea that I have really seen individual groups getting together on grassroots efforts, making a huge impact on the outcome of this story, especially in New York. (laughs) Now, some of you might know that there is no drilling in New York right now. Um, Drilling has gone pretty full speed ahead in Pennsylvania, even now, despite the lower prices of natural gas. But in New York, it stopped before it could start. And that was because when we started to see uh, and ask questions about the Marcellus shale, Um, we had municipal planners we had uh, public safety people we had local governing people and local residents filling town halls saying what is this going to look like so I want to go back to the summer of 2008 and this is when this started when I was reporting it for the, for the uh, Binghamton Press and Sun Bulletin and, and natural gas development was just one of many stories nobody knew what the Marcellus shale was and it was two years before Josh Fox had really made fracking a dirty word so Dewey Decker a fourth generation dairy farmer had a coalition of five he led a coalition of 500 farmers in Broome and Delaware County that sense something big was happening when Landman began bidding up the prices in the area. The price of natural gas was approaching an all-time high, giving companies stronger incentives to explore new horizons. Hydraulic fracturing, which was developed for the Barnett Shale, as we talked about, was unproven in other shales, and it was starting to be proven in Pennsylvania. There was a company called Mitchell Energy that used the same technology in the Barnett and found that it could work in in, in Appalachia. And that was a huge deal because the geological uh, circumstances in Appalachia as well as the topography and the water resources and everything else are completely different from what they were in Texas. So XTO Energy, a Texas company, which was later bought by ExxonMobil, offered Dewey Decker and a coalition controlling 50,000 acres in West Eastern Broome County $110 million for land rights plus 15% royalties for this unexplored virgin area, which is right on the the cusp of the Delaware River watershed and within the Susquehanna River watershed. This was an instant game changer. Believe me, when you have a bunch of farmers in this part of the country, uh, in this part of the state, getting together to land a 110 million dollar deal, everybody started paying attention. This was with a Houston company. It wasn't a local small driller like the type that had been drilling over in Western New York for years, and um, people knew right away that that something was was happening. No, uh, and I'll be happy, I will answer that question and then I'll be happy to answer questions uh, uh, at the end of the presentation as well. This mineral, these mineral rights went for about $3,500 an acre. And uh, land was probably a little bit more than that, but not a lot more than that, four or $5,000 an acre. Eventually, prices for mineral rights around that area, especially if they're near a major pipeline called the Millennium Pipeline, uh, went up from there. They went to four, or five thousand dollars an acre, and in that part of the country, that, that's a lot because land is, is, is. I think the point you're making is is not that uh, expensive there. So this marked the beginning of a full-on gas rush. Um, uh, acreage was going. Landmen were coming. People were forming coalitions to uh, leverage their bargaining rights. And um, not many people knew what was happening. So we, th- we had a lot of town meetings that summer in, in upstate New York. Uh, and state representatives were there. Local government people were there. As I said, public people from the emergency volunteer fire department were there. Farmers were there. Everybody wanted to know how, what would this look like, this shale gas development. And they turned to the Department of Environmental Conservation for answers. And the one answer they got consistently got was, this will be just fine because we've been doing this for a long, long time. And uh, Linda Collart was a mineral resources person. I, I recount a lot of this in the book because again, it comes to the grassroots aspect of it. Linda Collart was a mineral resources person and she gave several presentations in front of these packed town halls. And she used this slide here to show what natu- what shale gas development would look like. This is a, a slide from a traditional Barnett or I'm sorry, a traditional Trenton Black River well, which is the vertical type of wells we talked about in a geographically limited area. And this was a success story, as Sheep said. She said, We've never had any problems with this um, shale gas develop or with natural gas development. And shale gas development will really be nothing different. And I'm going to read one little excerpt from the book. All right, this is where Collart and uh, some other people from the Farm Bureau and the Susquehanna River Basin were facing a a, a group of uh, town hall people. They sat in front of several hundred residents, suburbanites, farmers, and officials from the town, county, and state governments who packed the public hall beyond capacity. The meeting was also streamed online. Collett ran through a PowerPoint presentation of how Marcellus' development would proceed using information and photographs from conventional plays in upstate New York. She paused on a slide showing a lush meadow of wildflowers and grasses with a bank of trees in the background. This was a reclaimed natural gas site, she said, and an example of the expected long-term impact from Marcellus' shale development. I recognized the slide from a DEC display two years earlier when I was covering public hearings on a proposal by the Office of Mineral Resources to lease the mineral rights of state forests in the southern tier in central New York, and I'm just going to skip over this part. Long story short, the people from the mineral resources division of the DEC said the same thing back then. This is before anybody knew anything would be uh, with the, uh, anything knew knew anything about the Marcellus. The crowd at the um, The display had included the photograph that Collart now showed, and Dahl had given a similar assessment that the impacts from shale gas development due to the, quote, well-established regulatory program, end quote, and quote, rigorous permitting process, end quote, of the agency would be minimal or even environmentally beneficial over the long term. The crowd at the Shenango Town Hall was skeptical. People fired questions at the panel before Collart's presentation was over. A person in back stood up and asked how local emergency responders could prepare for a spill, fire, or explosion when the industry did not fully disclose the complete chemical content and concentration of fracking fluids. Collard, who projects the disarming manner of a school teacher in her presentations, looked at the other members of the panel to see if anybody might wanna take a crack at that one. They looked back at her expectantly, expectantly. We don't anticipate any significant emergencies, she said after a pause. These things are rare. Another person stood up and asked how regulators were preparing for an influx of drilling that would exceed any historical comparison. Collett responded, we've been doing fine so far, no problems. She returned to her PowerPoint and was interrupted again by a person who noted that incentives for roadside dumping would go up as waste increased faster than the options for treatment. How would the agency handle that? You have landowners out there. You have neighbors out there. We would hear about it, Collard said. Hopefully the operators will be responsible. More questioning along the same lines followed her presentation, and she delivered the same answers. Flowback is classified as an industrial waste and therefore requires a permit for transport, she said. Again and again came a question. Where will it go? I can't answer that, she said. It's all regulated, she added. Now this presentation and others like it by Linda Collert and her peers is largely in front of a public audience similar to this is one of the reasons we don't have drilling up in New York state because the the town people held the DEC responsible and the governor's office because this was streamed online and the media was starting to cover it more aggressively because everybody wanted to know what it what would happen sent his direct reports out to some more meetings, and they came back, this was Governor David Patterson, with the the news that this was a public relations train wreck for the agency. And um, soon after that, David Patterson said, well, I guess we're gonna have to take an environmental, another look at this environmentally and see really what this is. So uh, score one for the people in terms of raising the visibility and controlling the outcome of state government. Now we have, four years later in upstate New York over again a prime section of the Marcellus a huge debate going on a very polarizing debate about when and how permitting will start and uh, there's some who believe legally the state just can't ban it because you're taking away people's mineral rights that's a legal argument uh, you're taking away their freedoms to do certain things in their land and some that other people have so how can you do that and then there's other people that are saying well I have the right to be protected against drilling. So this is dragging on. And there's one other important thing I'm gonna talk about in a little while. It's the price of natural gas. And right now, the price of natural gas is very low. So I'm gonna get back to that. Well, a different scenario played out in Pennsylvania. In New York and Pennsylvania straddle some of the largest gas reserves in the world as we've seen with the maps. So their geology is similar, Uh, their political and policy approaches could not differ more. Why are some states like Pennsylvania moving ahead and others like New York holding back? The answer is in the political dispositions and culture of a given place. The roughnecks and cowboy mystique associated with the drilling industry fits better in some regions than in others. New York has a long history of land preservation, particularly in the Finger Lakes, the Catskills, the Adirondacks, but other places as well. By comparison, mineral extraction has been part of the northern Pennsylvania economy and culture for centuries. The modern petroleum era was birthed in Titusville, Pennsylvania. When Edwin Drake began began commercially producing oil and gas in the middle of the 19th century, it was a time characterized by uncontrolled exploitation of natural resources. As you can see from this slide, cumulative impact was not a real concern back then. Those are all derricks from the uh, mid-19th century, and uh, that's when Drake, uh, Colonel Drake, essentially drilled the first uh, petroleum wells in the country, uh, giving rise to the the modern-day petroleum era. This was before automobiles, but petroleum was used for kerosene, and it was displacing whale oil at the time. So prior to World War I, the anthracite coal industry, extending south from Lackawanna County's northern border with Dauphin County, employed 181,000 mine workers and led the growth and capitalization of the country. Coal from the hills of northeastern Pennsylvania fueled factories, forging works, and homes. Railroads were built, canals dug, and the entire economic infrastructure was built on the back of northeastern Pennsylvania's coal industry. The consequences were sometimes dire. In 1959, the Knox Mining Company ignored orders by the State Department of Mines to shut down an anthracite coal mine running under the Susquehanna River in Port Griffith after inspectors had found the company violating rules that prohibited mining within 35 feet from the bed of the river. Ten billion gallons of water drained from the river and filled the interconnecting networks of shafts below Wyoming Valley. That's what it looked like. The 12 miners who died in that accident were part of an appalling record on workplace safety that underscores the fact that mineral extraction, the thing that brings us the modern, modern comforts and conveniences unknown throughout history, is tough, dangerous work with lasting environmental consequences. Between 1869 and 1999, more than 31,000 miners died on the job in the anthracite region alone. Workplace safety improved over time, yet injury and fatality in the coal industry remains uh, a hazard to both workers and to residents. Waste from mine shafts still follows rivers and tributaries. The earth beneath entire communities spews flames from inextinguishable fires. One of the most famous examples is found in the town of Centralia, over a, vibrant, a once vibrant borough with more than 2,000 residents in the southern part of the anthracite region. It was abandoned and condemned after an underground coal fire began spreading in 1962. And that fire still burns today. But we are concerned with the the problems of here and now, as well as learning from our history. And that brings us back to the issue of fracking. Now, this looks nothing like the Drake oil field but it's a far cry from from the field of flowers that Linda Collart was showing the public. And this is what Pennsylvania shale gas development looks like today. We're seeing that it's altogether different from conventional drilling in terms of intensity and duration and scale of development. A reclaimed well may eventually look like a grassy field someday, but spacing units are designed to accommodate one pad per square mile in a fully developed shale play, as many as six to eight wells will be drilled down that pad. After they are drilled, each of those wells will be fracked and refract over a period of years or decades. And um, I think it's important, I might raise this again later on in my talk, that we're not really seeing a shale gas rush in Pennsylvania right now. We're seeing the very, very, very beginnings of a shale gas rush. There may be... 3,500 shale gas wells permitted in the entire state of Pennsylvania, Um, and if this plays out to its potential the way it's expected, we'd be talking about 70,000 wells. What you can't see is critically important. Now, I've been talking a lot about the technical aspects and the background of this, and uh, the book does deal with this uh, fairly in-depth, but it mostly is a narrative, and it's about how this impacts people and the stories of people, politicians, residents, town folks, um, industry people uh, across the board, lawyers, um, businesses. And this one bit that I'm going to read now is from... The perspective of uh, Pat Fornelli, uh, who is one of the uh, residents in Demick, Pennsylvania, which is in Susquehanna County, where a lot of this started. It's right across from the New York border where Cabot Oil and Gas is drilling. And uh, this ramped up in 2008. And a lot of these residents uh, were very optimistic, as I said earlier. They had no reason not to be when the landman came to their door and said, we got clean burning natural gas under your land and you can make some money off it. And uh, you can probably pay your taxes, and some of you might get rich. And uh, there won't be anything to it, really. It's kind of like the American dream, if you think about it, the Beverly Hillbillies. There's, there's, there's riches under that land. Eureka. From the laundry line in her side yard, Pat Fernelli had a sweeping view of a scene that would determine her future. Men and equipment had moved from the hill across the Burdick Creek Hollow to a fallow pasture directly below the, her house. In late September 2008, bulldozers cut through a field ablaze with goldenrod to level a pad for Guestford 3. The well would draw gas from under the adjoining Fernelli land, and the family's mortgage depended on corresponding ro- royalties. The derrick went up in early October. And soon the platform straddling the hole was busy with men in coveralls and hard hats who were lifting, swinging, and lowering pipes with hydraulics and heavy hardware hanging from chains. Shouts of the men in machinery over generators carried up the valley, sometimes with the smell of heavy machinery and diesel exhaust. As work progressed, it was easy for Pat to believe Destiny was working in her favor. At schools, churches, and the Lockhart lunch counter and gas mart, the news of the landmen and their pr- promises were giving way to the excitement of wells producing millions of cubic of feet per day from the Teal and Ely properties. There were also news of corresponding royalties. Crews were now busy hold- building compressor stations and pipelines on the Teal land at fair compensation, she heard, and drilling two other wells, wells along Carter Road. This is what Cabot's $600 million in shale gas development looked like. The size and the intensity of the operation, its manic force, force, focus and energy were all directed at producing wealth, and Pat took comfort in knowing her 20 acres were locked into the equation. Even a drop of that wealth, $3,000 or $4,000 per month, would make good things good for them. They could buy their, pay their mortgage, buy, houses and other, buy horses and other animals, and make a go at farming. Her oldest daughter was getting married that spring, and they would have enough for a nice wedding. Pat would no longer have to worry about making ends meet for six dependent children with Social Security, food stamps, and the lousy hours that, and low pay that Martin was getting at the Flying J Diner. That's where her husband worked as a cook. The shouts from the men and the drone of diesel motors and generators on October 8, 2008, a bright Wednesday morning, didn't sound peculiar to Pat. The crew had drilled to 2,000 feet, still several thousand feet above the Marcellus pay zone, when they encountered a problem that brought the multimillion dollar operation to an inglorious stop. Debris from the upper layers had fallen into the hole and jammed the drill. The, the Devonian bedrock under Guestford 3 is covered by 400 feet of glacial till, unconsolidated stone and gravel known in the in- industry as overburden. Drilling through the till is like to, trying to bore through a gravel pile, and although there is a technique to dr- deal with it, they are not foolproof. A drill that jammed somewhere in the overburden might have been less of a problem, but the Gasford crews had already worked their way through the till and were well into the gas-bearing zone of bedrock above the Marcellus. Gas had begun flowing, and the crews left with an open, uncased hole had no way to control it. The problem persisted throughout the fall. To Pat, it looked pretty much the same from day to day, with a round-the-clock procession of equipment and men the yelling at the site might have been laced with a little more profanity than usual, she reflected in hindsight, but really there was no way f- to know that the problem would soon amount to more than a lost piece of hardware. DEP inspectors were also ignorant of complications at Guestford 3 until an event on New Year's Day 2009 put them on notice. A blast echoed through the hills, a mile north of the Guestford well, A mile north of the guestford well concrete dust billowed from the ground and hung in the frigid air over the ruins of norma fiorentino's well water well norma was having supper at her daughter brenda's home with her daughter grandchildren and great-grandchildren she was feeling optimistic that year would be better than the last brenda's chemo treatments were keeping her cancer in check and her granddaughter was expecting a second child with luck she could buy some nice baby things with royalty payments. Now, upon the, her return home, she stood trying to fathom the gaping hole and the shattered concrete remains once covering her well. A random act of violence? Who would want to blow up her well? She covered. She called 911. As the Springfield Volunteer Fire Department cordoned off Norma's yard with bright yellow caution tape, Cabot representatives arrived on the scene. They took some tests around her house and determined that any gas, if it was there, was not lingering. So this brings us to the problem of methane migration. And it has to do with the uh, now infamous photo, uh, thanks to Josh Fox's uh, movie. Uh, everybody's become iconic of, uh, of the issue of shale gas, and that is the flames coming out of the faucet. And um, there's now a new movie out. It's sponsored by the industry. It's uh, debuting around the country called Truthland. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, it's the industry's answer to methane migration. And the point the industry makes is that methane has been in the water for a long time. And they try to nail Josh Fox on this. Uh, and there's a, if you've been following it on the web, it's a back and forth. And there's a conspiracy theory in the industry that Josh hasn't owned up to the fact that people could light their water on fire before shale gas development. <laughs> now, here's something that's very important to understand with this industry argument is, yes, methane is in the ground and petroleum's in the ground and there are natural methane seeps and natural petroleum seeps. And industry would not be trying to extract it from the ground if it wasn't there to begin with. So it's a confusing thing when they say, well, it's always been there. So there have been instances where shale gas or natural gas is not being developed, where people could light fire, uh, water on fire. And that's important to know. Um, And it's important to know because the industry will try to use those few examples and say, see, it happens all the time. So uh, there's a couple different types of methane migration, and I won't get too technical with it, but there's something called biogenic gas methane, and that's the stuff that you heard about in um, uh, farmer's pastures, in landfills, in swamps, swamp gas. We have a lot of organic material decomposing, and it, it, it turns into methane. And then you have something called thermogenic gas. Thermogenic gas is the stuff like in the Devonian bedrock that's formed under heat and pressure over millions of years. And that's the stuff that the industry is going for. So in the case of Norma Fiorentino's well that blew up, the industry wanted to blame the methane that has been around for centuries. When in fact the Department of Environmental Protection, I'm sorry, the DEP, yes, the the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection did in fact trace that chemically, to the thermogenic gas. There was no argument uh, about that. It was conclusive. So um, one other very important thing is before normal wells blew blew up, the DEP wasn't really even paying attention to this. After it blew up, they began an investigation. They found all sorts of missing records. They found well logs that went uh, undocumented, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the point was made then that Geez, you know what? We don't have the oversight because the industry self reports this, anyways. And until we have a sensational problem, um, n- nobody seems to care or pay attention to it. Okay, so Norma's wealth created uh, up news, and I'm not sure if people heard about it down here, but certainly in New York State, where everybody was wondering what shale gas drilling was, they looked to Cabot development in Pennsylvania they saw this and they thought, uh, okay, uh, maybe so maybe there is a problem. And I'm gonna read a little bit more about the follow up on that. Although Norma's well soon became famous, it was neither the first nor the worst case of methane migration related to gas drilling in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Much of what officials knew about the dangers of methane migration they had learned years before from more costly instances. The Pennsylvania Department of uh, DEP Bureau of Oil and Gas Management has files on more than 50 other cases dating back to the beginning of 2004 to the time Norma's well exploded. All involved dangerous and sometimes fatal accumulations of gas migrating from new or abandoned wells into enclosed spaces. They had happened before the shale gas rush became big news and they had gained relatively little public attention. In 2004, DEP records documented the collection of gas in the basement of the Harper residence near several wells being drilled by the Snyder Brothers in Jefferson County, about 80 miles northwest of Pittsburgh. On March 5th, the furnace kicked on and an explosion leveled the house and killed Charles Harper, his wife Dorothy, and their grandson Bailey. A report by the Pittsburgh Geological Society a report by the Pittsburgh Geological Society includes a photograph of the scene, a foundation covered by charred rubble, and the shells of a burnt-out automobiles in the driveway, and that's this photograph here. Although it rarely makes headlines, damage or threats caused by gas migration is a common problem in western Pennsylvania, states the document. In July 2008, an explosion killed the residents of, Mar- in, of Marion Township who tried to light a candle in the bathroom. The DEP record of the event, one paragraph long, states that the agency, quote, became aware, end quote, of the problem after the fatality, which it linked to gas migrating into the septic system from an old gas well with deteriorating casing. The DEP files also contain some cases noteworthy for what was unknown or at least undocumented. Unknown name, this is, I'm reading from a file here, directly from a file. Quote, unknown name, Armstrong County, SWRO, that's Southwest Regional Office, 1999. House explosion resulting in destruction of residents in one fatality. Investigation is not well documented. Origin mechanism of migration is in operating gas well. Pressurization of casing, status resolved. So in going through these records, I found that it was uh, really enlightening that the DEP had not documented this stuff extensively. And the reason why gets back to these exemptions and disclosure loopholes that the industry operates with. The industry is not required to uh, report a lot of problems when it has uh, the release of something happening underground. And... uh, Therefore, no, nobody knows about it until there's a problem. The burden of proof oftentimes is left with residences. Now, Norma's Well and other uh, events in Dimmick began getting coverage by the mainstream press, largely ignorant of this history, but eager to answer questions about what shale gas development would look like. And I was one of these reporters, and that was working for the Press and Sun Bulletin. Which is a Gannett paper in, in, uh, in Binghamton. So we looked across the border to Susquehanna County to see what to expect. And uh, I'm going to flip back through this if I could because I want you to see what Normus Well looked like because I did skip over that one earlier. Here's the documents that, that talked about the 50 other cases. Uh, that really was not released to the public it was a public document and I found it after doing a lot of digging around because uh, it, the public is entitled to it but it was ne- never put out in a press release so it went essentially unreported so the main focus after Norma's well blew up were these folks in Dimmick. and many of them their names had not appeared in the newspaper outside of their birth and marriage notices but they were finding that these expectations they had for shale gas development was entirely different than the reality. In addition to Pat and Norma, who I read about, these residents included Ron and Jean Carter, second generation farmers, Ken Ely, a quarry owner and equipment operator, who was enthusiastic over the prospects of producing shale gas from his land, and Victoria Schweitzer, she's a retired school teacher who was building a contemporary dream home with her husband, Jimmy. And she characterized the people thrown into the front line of the national debate as accidental activists, and they indeed became familiar faces in the shale gas story. A lot of these people uh, started out um, sharing their stories with the media, and some of them are are now uh, nationally known figures. Grassroots activism also came to characterize landowners eager to lease their land to gas companies and business owners determined uh, dependent on the income. So we have in this uh, th- these folks, we have Dewey Decker. Uh, Don Lockhart is the owner of Lockhart Lunch Counters. He sells a lot of gas to the, the trucks that roll through there. Uh, he does a lot of business <coughs> to the Roughnecks and the other business industry landmen that come in to eat. And um, you can't discount these people from the discussion. And in upstate New York and in, in Pennsylvania, Uh, These are neighbors, so um, they're all very active. Some are much more reasonable in their approach to the discussion than others. I'm interested, again, because, again, this is all happening. This is the grassroots aspect of it. Uh, The land coalition part of it is an interesting grassroots aspect because you really have a bunch of farmers that are trying to get legal leverage without any help from anybody else except for their lawyers. Uh, to fight the gas companies and get shale gas uh, on on their terms. Now lobbyists, PR firms, gas companies, and mainstream environmental groups are driving the discussion now, which we hear on a daily basis. And again, a lot of this, I think, is uh, also because Josh Fox really put this on the radar map with his, with his movie. To date, the story unfolding in the heart of Appalachia has produced many issues that remain in play, I think, which we all know. The Dimmick water well is a focus of a broader EPA investigation reconsidering the safety of fracking. And this is very important because the Halliburton loophole, justification for the Halliburton loophole was built on a previous EPA study, again, under the Bush administration. And under the Bush EPA, uh, the study looked at um, uh, Coal bed extraction wells on a limited basis and said we don't see any problem with this uh, polluting the water. Well later on some of the EPA whistleblowers uh, reneged on that. They said well in fact we didn't intend this to become national policy and we need to look at it more. Now the Obama EPA is looking at water quality issues in Dimmick and in um, pavilion Wyoming and uh, in other places. And uh, there is a review that is expected maybe by the end of the year, it'll be interesting to see if it comes out before or after elections that uh, will assess whether fracking is indeed a hazard to water. And I think this is just another example where the government seems to be way behind because the government isn't finding problems because there's no disclosure, there's no disclosure laws. So of course they're not gonna find problems. And then you have a case where Norma Fiorentino's well explodes in Pennsylvania, and, the, and then the regulators come in and they say, well, geez, maybe we do have a problem. And even that is, you can read in the book, uh, ended up being a back and forth in the Rendell administration, which was the Democrat, uh, the, uh, uh, Governor Ed Rendell, the Democrat governor in, in Pennsylvania, uh, found out one thing. And he tried to hold Cabot accountable to build a water line to compensate the, the landowners. And of course, now we have the Corbett administration, the Republican who's pro gas, anti regulatory, and his DEP has absolved Cabot of any problems. So uh, you very much have it becomes a, a political issue. Okay, and I talked a little bit about the exemptions and accountability. Uh, We talked about the Clean Drinking Water Act, but I think a point that I want people to take home tonight is that what's hazardous waste for an IBM or a Kodak or a million other companies over there is not hazardous waste for the drilling company. So this stuff comes out of the ground. We're not quite sure what it is, but it's not classified as hazardous waste. It can be the same chemical makeup that you have in in, uh, other industries, but because uh, it's a classification issue. So because it's not hazardous waste, it doesn't have to be treated the same way, and the same disclosure doesn't apply to it. And that, that just very much complicates the issues of accountability. Now, there's something else here that, that I think is very important, a point I'd like to make, is a lot of people say, well, there's risks associated with everything. And, and there's, there, we have to accept the risks with chemical, with, with uh, mineral extraction and drilling. And I, I, I can agree with that. There's risk to driving a car. There's risk to the conveniences of modern-day living to jet over across the country or to um, intercontinental um, But there's something very different about the mineral extraction, and that is, there's a lot of people, it's one thing to get in a car and know your risks. I know if I'm driving a motorcycle or a sports car, I'm taking that risk because I like feeling the wind through my hair. And it's it's something I can live with if that's what I want to do. If uh, other industries have risks, they most often work in an industrial park or a place zoned for drilling. The thing with the gas drilling company is people are often completely ignorant of the risk because there's no disclosure, and the industry works on other people's land. So I think that that's important. Uh, that's an important point. Now I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the future of shale gas. What's happening and where we're going, and I'll wrap it up so we'll have time for some questions. Um, I think like the past, the future is going to be determined by the interplay of many factors. And I'm just going to look at the the legislative issues in New York by way of example, the judicial issues and the executive branches of government. And uh, this also will apply, I think, to uh, federally as well. Um, There's something called home rule uh, happening in New York and Pennsylvania. Uh, Home rule is this idea that municipalities should local municipalities should have control over what happens, or cities should have control of what happens in their jurisdictions. And traditionally, gas drilling has been exempt from lots of things, including this idea that zone, local zoning boards can ban it. It's always been the state that has controlled the industry, or been, hasn't controlled the industry, I guess if you want to look at it that way. But it's been the state that has issued the permits. And local municipalities have had no say over it. So the municipalities in upstate New York, especially some in certain regions with a history of land preservations that are very concerned about the impacts from drilling, are saying, wait a minute, we can zone all these other industries, so if we find land use, our land use is incompatible with drilling, we're gonna, we're gonna ban them too. We should be able to do that as a local government. So Dryden, uh, town of Dryden, which is uh, near the, in the Finger Lakes, is close to Ithaca, and the town of Middlefield they have both implemented bans. And they've both been challenged by the industry, which claims that A, the state, not local municipalities, have the jurisdictional right to permit gas wells. And B, um, you can't take away somebody's mineral rights that wants to, within a, a certain municipality, you can't take away the rights to develop their land. The lower courts in New York have upheld the ban. That has been a huge victory for the uh, anti-frackers. And the industry naturally is appealing. So this is, again, interesting to me because it's another ground up. It's the town's folks that are having a say over how shale gas development will proceed in New York. And um, this is important because the industry said it needs predictability and, and uniformity to develop a play the size of Marcellus. So you can't have these towns opting out. You can't have, if you're an industry person and you want to tie all this together with the pipelines and infrastructure and compression stations and uh, six or seven well pads per square mile, you can't have these big, and you want to lease up land and contiguous land, you can't have these big gaps where a city or a town decides they can't have shale gas drilling. So to effect, it could be one way if the courts uphold home rule in New York, and the same sort of battles going on in Pennsylvania, then it could be a way to effectively uh, delay or stall shale gas development. There's other things. Um, legislatively, obviously, um, the lawmakers ha- have a say in in uh, in this. In Vermont, for example, they they have passed a ban. Um, it's interesting. It's largely symbolic because there's not a lot of, a lot of uh, shale gas mineral resources in Vermont. Um, in Pennsylvania is act 13 that's the thing that's being uh, determined by the courts and again that is the municipality's uh, right uh, to uh, regulate this or not and then there's the markets uh, I talked about this earlier and I'm gonna wrap up with this in just another another few minutes in 2008 the price of natural gas was at an all-time high and there was a, it was a frenzy almost with the amount of cash and money that was being laid on the table. As we know, with the d- deposit farmers, $110 million and $5,000 per acre. Um, there was a lot of pushing and shoving to get to this shale and a lot of political wherewithal with that type of money on the t- table for, to, to go ahead with it. price of natural gas now is at an all-time low companies are scaling back they're not as uh, they're not exploring new horizons aggressively shale gas or natural gas works in cycles and so things have cooled off but you can bet that it will probably move back up and there's several things uh... that the industry is now doing to capitalize on this abundance of shale gas in the northeast there's an ethylene cracker plant uh... that is being cited in uh... pittsburgh pennsylvania cracker plant essentially uses All this uh, natural gas is a a feedstock to make all sorts of products from saran Saran wrap to fertilizer. So we know that petroleum products obviously aren't our uh, way of life. So um, where the markets go is going to be important in in determining uh, where shale gas goes and the political forces at work. And then we have the elections coming up. And it will be very interesting to see what a... Romney EPA does with national uh, EPA or ne- what Romney EPA does versus what uh, Obama EPA does. Yeah, well, um, I'll just say also that we we know Obama has given a lot of lip service to shale gas. Uh, there's a movement in Congress to run vehicles on shale gas to give to give natural gas powered vehicles um, incentives. And if this happens, the demand goes up, prices go up, market goes up, there's a lot more pushing for development. Um, But if the EPA steps in and starts regulating it, that's a disincentive. So I think uh, elections both nationally and, and locally are important. So it's going to be an interesting year, and I'll be happy to take lots of questions. Yeah.
2: Uh, The the EPA was doing some studies and found that fracking was causing some uh, earthquakes, so I just want to make that as a statement. And uh, Baltimore was actually receiving uh, the fracking waste from Pennsylvania going to the Back River waste treatment plant. So I don't know if you've been tracking in your reporting if you've been tracking any of the waste.
6: Yes, uh, thank you. And let me just speak quickly to the earthquakes. I know uh, certainly in Ohio, related to the waste, um, they have injected it into wells. And this is called seismic activity in Ohio that has gotten, that has gotten people nervous. And the thought is, well, if this is just a little bit of waste causing this, what happens when this gets built out? As far as the disposal of waste in Pennsylvania, for a while they were just running it right through the sewage treatment plants without really knowing what it was, because there was no disclosure laws put in place. And uh, also there was a lot of brine in it. And the Mon River and other rivers in the river system were getting very salty. And uh, there was the Dunkard Creek, the infamous fish kill, uh, blamed on golden algae that was related to a mine discharge, but also due to drawdowns from rivers in the Dunkard Creek that made uh, the... Waste concentration higher within the rivers and a lot of other issues. So as far as Baltimore and Maryland, I'm not quite sure what the policy is on waste, but I think one thing I can say safely is states have not developed this waste policy. What do we do with this waste? We know uh, Pennsylvania has said you can't put it through our sewage treatment plants anymore, but they haven't said what you can do with it. The industry holds up this idea that we're recycling it. We have closed-loop drilling. But that's not a mandate. It's not regulated. It's just something people got to take the industry on the world. Trust us, we're recycling it, see? Um, We do know for a fact that it is going into deep well injection in Ohio, and we're about 3,000 or 4,000 wells into it, so it's a great question about 40,000 wells into it. Where is the waste going to go? Very important question. Yeah.
5: My question is whether or not we uh, know about – whether or not this fracking could actually be done um, safely. We know the products are toxic and so on, but the question is they've, they've been doing this for a while. Almost all the anecdotal reports I hear are negative, but those are just anecdotal reports. And um, it must be some good reports, otherwise all these people wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be leasing their land, someone must have a good report. And the question that I would have is, do we know there are thousands of wells? Do we know, let's say out of a thousand wells, how many of these bad events? How many explosions, uh, if you have a thousand wells, how many explosions are there? How many bad outcomes are there versus good outcomes? Do we have any such information?
6: Uh, It's hard to quantify, and the reason why is, again, because of the disclosure and the lack of reporting information. Uh, You make a good point. Some people are very happy with this. They want to see it going on. These are people that are making money off it. Uh, There's landowners with large tracts that are making a lot of money, and there's some people who are relying on the business. And I think I I pointed to a few of the characters who are um, represented in the book. Uh, To have a number of how many problems we have versus what the total universe is, is difficult. I think a lot of the environmental concern comes from this idea of cumulative impact. So you're not just looking at a set of gas wells in Pennsylvania anymore. You're looking at the set of gas wells throughout the country over a period of decades. And what are we going to do? How are we going to handle the waste issues? You make a point, though, that there are people happy with it, there are instances, many instances, where it doesn't pollute wells, right? But as the media, we, we tend to report on the plane crashes rather than all the safe landings. That's just the way the media works. It's the old school watchdog, uh, watchdog aspect of it. But it wouldn't be a polarizing debate if we didn't have the people that felt that it could be done safely.
4: Uh, Thank you for coming. Uh, I would just say if you're pumping 573 uh, chemicals into the uh, ground, uh, none of them could be uh, safe, but uh, that isn't the point I wanted to make. Uh, You and I disagree on old journalism. I think the best journalist we have is Amy Goodman, uh, who follows the I.F. Stone tradition, and that's where I first learned on, on her show, Democracy Now! About Fracking. I don't think it's accidental Uh, Especially when you see the uh, Josh Fox film, it's not accidental that Dick Cheney was the one that uh, uh, brought in this here uh, exemption. And this is also the same person that led us into several wars, even before he was in the Bush administration. Right now, what we have outside is climate chaos. And I would argue that the number one cause of environmental degradation is the Pentagon. They're destroying Mother Earth and fracking is just one more environmental problem we have to deal with. And I appreciate you uh, listening to me. Thank you very much. Sure,
6: absolutely. Thank you for coming. And um, uh, I I I will just add along to elaborate a little bit on this idea of uh, the big environmental picture is natural gas has been billed as the clean bridge, clean burning alternative to coal. And uh, is better than blowing up mountaintops. Again, there is some, I think that's an argument you have to at least consider because uh, coal has a lot of mercury and the the legacy of coal is pretty bad. But uh, I think a discussion that's on the table that I'm interested in is uh, two professors from Cornell University started this and Graffi and Haworth is, is this really better than coal? Have we measured it? Have we taken into account all the air pollution? Have we taken into account the fact that methane is a powerful green hat greenhouse agent it's a potent greenhouse gas uh, have you taken into account all the trucks you know with the diesel exhaust, et cetera et cetera and they did, and their study says that this is uh, a worse pollution and air pollution we're not talking water now than coal. Other studies from MIT and other places have refuted that I, again, I think it's all part of the discussion, but it's something that's on the table now,
3: yeah, yeah so. Pennsylvania is probably a bad example of where uh, the state allowed fracking with very minimal study and regulation of the range of possible pollutants. And my sense is that New York State and Maryland are examples of where the states have decided to go slow and to... um, make sure that uh, if, if it's done, well, they want to see what the impacts are and to have it properly regulated and so forth. Are there any states that you're aware of in the country, because fracking is going on throughout the country, where uh, states do have a, a good set of regulations in place for all of, the, for the full range of environmental impacts from the uh, fracking uh, process?
6: Yeah, I know of no gold standard yet. I think the states are still figuring it out. I think you gave two very good extremes where Pennsylvania and, and Texas are saying, bring it on, we'll kind of bridge these problems as they come. Pennsylvania and Maryland, two examples of saying, hold off, we want to figure it out before we even start. There are states like Colorado, uh, Arkansas, other places that have, well, they're different, i can't speak to everyone but i would say the answer is no i don't think there's any state that has this gold-plated I, uh, regulatory formula to to approach this and i i think regardless of that i think you still need the epa involved uh, my personal belief is uh the you need the federal oversight with the clean drinking water act
8: yep. uh two things one is a uh thing for you that you may be useful if you continue following this issue, and then I have a basic question about some of the Maryland maps you showed. Uh, One is uh, the deep well injection stuff. Uh, There's a Rocky Mountain Arsenal, which was an Army site, and then leased by Shell to make agriculture chemicals. They did deep well injection out there, uh, and I can't remember if it was 40s, 50s, or 60s. It's too long ago in my past, but uh, they actually stopped doing deep well injection because of seismic problems caused by it. So it has been known that deep well injection can cause uh, seismic disturbances for decades. Uh, so why certain states are working to piece this together now, I don't know. But if you're interested in historical stuff on that, you might want to look up Rocky Mountain Arsenal sure. and some of the community activists out there. Okay. Uh, follow-up question on the Maryland. Uh, you showed a few different maps with where the Marcellus Shale is or is not, particularly in the Allegheny County region. There was like one map. It didn't cover it. Uh, one map it did, and then one map it was marked by something like highly folded area or something really towards the most narrow part of Maryland and a little bit west of that. And I was curious if you could clarify what is known or not known with regards to that part of Maryland.
6: Sure. I do not know a lot of the geology uh, of, of Maryland. Um, okay. Well, I can go, go back into- and
8: yeah, get to like. Sh- sure, I maps. can go back and... Like I, right there, you see the most narrow part of of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, like where I it, see r- it, it almost yep. pinches out. Yep. Uh, on your very first map, you didn't have the shale going to that point. It was all farther west. I and see. then on this one, you have it kind of covering that central part of Maryland. Yes, and I was curious if you could address yes, what's happening there. Yep. Thank you.
6: Uh, first of all, the actual concrete delineation of these plays is hazy because we don't have geographical or geological data from every data point. So they're going to vary. They're unexplored around the periphery. But I can say that this is the official USGS map here um, and the government map that you see. And uh, yes, there is shale gas in that part of Pennsylvania and Marcellus Shale in particular. Yes, I'm Marilyn. Thank you. Sorry.
7: Yes. Hi, thanks for coming tonight. Um, my family lives in Tioga County, Pennsylvania, just south of the New York border. And, Mm -hmm. uh, my sister-in-law actually works for Anadarko. Um, so we talk a lot about this. Um, Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I'm learning, uh, in discussion about the communities is how very little, uh, residents like Norma Fiorentino, uh, can do in standing up against the, the legal, uh, apparatus of companies like Shell and Anadarko and XTO and I'm wondering if there's any kind of movement to form I don't know what the right word would be but a, a legal collective that can sort of pool together to represent these people when we have a civil rights violation we call the ACLU is there any kind of thing in formation or in discussion for people you know these regular Joe farmers who don't yes. have money to live in court?
6: Two organizations come to mind that fight these type of battles is uh, the um, Earth Justice is one uh, that takes up the fight of environmental causes. The NRDC, National Resources Defense Council does as well. There is some uh, infighting within the NRDC and some of the grassroots activists right now. They don't feel the NRDC is, they they feel the NRDC is compromising somewhat on the shale gas issues. But yes, those are the two that come to mind. Uh, Some of the large national environmental groups Will take up the causes. Does somebody else have some insights on that? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Do you want? uh, Okay. Do you want? (laughs) Uh, As as long as we're on, thank you. I didn't want to interrupt you. All right, no, that's fine.
1: But yes, Clean Water Action right now is urgently um, running a campaign specifically against the use of diesel. Right now, in hydrofracking, because as you know, that's already written into law. Um, we're an environmental lobbying group. We're a grassroots organization. So, if you guys are really moved, please do take your notepads, write out letters. We're delivering them to the EPA, and our our lobbyist Andy Galley hand delivers them with his to with him um, when he has these environmental meetings and when he has meetings with policy holders and senators and.
6: Okay, uh, so. which, is an, which is a lobbying effort it is a little different from uh, legal taking up a, a legal case, though. In yes. In Clean Water Action <laughs> does good 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 work on the grassroots level. I, a lot of respect for that, and, and I have several good sources. Uh, clean Water Action, but um, okay, uh, something for this particular question, yeah? Yeah, yeah.
8: So I work with Food and Water Watch, and we have a single
0: team with Food and Water Watch Justice, and we could potentially take on
6: on these kinds of campaigns globally with uh our lawsuits, or we could
4: at least put post-intentions like the wall with those, which the first step, is especially some law for exact and pro bono both then we get up. Okay.
1: Thank you. Okay. Okay. I was just gonna say CR Club is one of the groups that's also active on this as well.
6: Okay, yeah, and there's a lot of the environmental groups mainstream and grassroots that are doing one thing or the other, and the specific is the, the legal wherewithal. So, thank you. Okay.
4: Um,
7: thanks for coming. I just had a question. Uh, when you were talking about the methane migration,
4: mm-hmm.
6: you
7: made it sound like it was more of a well construction problem than actually a fracking problem. And so I was wondering if you could just sort of explain.
6: Excellent question. I'm glad you asked that question. Fracking sometimes has become synonymous with shale gas development. And technically, fracking is a very specific uh, part of shale gas. It's well stimulation. So you have the drilling when you have the derrick there, and you have the pipes, the drill drill line going down and, and then coming out. They take the drill down, they case it, and then in comes the big tanks for fracking. That's called stimulation. Methane migration may or may not be related to fracking. There's a lot that is unknown about fracking because it's generally unregulated. We do know that methane migration is related to drilling and uh, construction of of casing. So, and there is an argument that, well, what about what happens when you're fracking bedrock 4,000 feet down, you're blowing it apart and you have all these unknowns, geological unknowns between different layers that allow the migration for different ma- layers, can it come up? There's various debates on that, various studies. It's just an unstudied area, but it's almost a no-brainer that when you're drilling a hole, you're creating a, a methane uh, or a, a pathway for, to mix things from deep down in the ground with upper zones. I mean, so that that's drilling. Again, it doesn't necessarily relate to methane. There's or to fracking. There's some wells that are not fracked where you might have a methane migration problem. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
2: Hi there. So uh, I so appreciated that you covered so many of the environmental issues. I'm a public health nurse and uh, connected to public health nurses around the country that are concerned with this. And just so you know how many nurses there are, one in every 100 Americans is a registered nurse. So there are a lot of us. And we are very concerned about this, so concerned that the American Nurses Association on Friday nationally passed a resolution that called for the, a moratorium nationally on permits for, share, for uh, fracking sites, which is really big. I wanted to mention a couple of the public health issues that are evolving out of this that public health nurses are watching and also something that you should note is that the Governor of Pennsylvania effectively put a gag order on public health people in the state health department to not talk about fracking. That's something that I think that um, the news um, needs to be covering more of, of that kind of stuff. One is that um, when these roughnecking cowboys come into town, they need a place to live and they are displacing low-income people who are renting and seniors who are on fixed income. And that is happening in these small communities because communities, they don't have a lot of housing. The other thing is that it takes lots of trucks, and you didn't talk about how many, but lots of trucks come through the community, and the WHO, the World Health Organization, just declared diesel, which is what's fueling these trucks, as a known carcinogen. And now there are going to be thousands of these in these small communities on these rural roads where there weren't them before. Um, The other thing is that um, within the context of the American Nurses Association resolution, we captured what we do know about the public health outcomes fracking and that will be up on the American Nurses Association website all those citations in about a week or two because give them time to get back and rewind Um, no I'm going to just say two more things because I think the public needs to know this excuse me and please I already bought his book please everybody here buy his book um, the, just a very recent human health study that was done com- using three different states where they're fracking, comparing newborn babies. They're what are called their APGAR studies. When you are born, you get this, you get this numerical sort of depiction of how healthy you are, or how not healthy as a newborn. It's one to ten scale. What they found in those areas where they are are doing the fracking versus where they are not. Babies are being born with lower, meaning poorer APGAR scales, and lower birth weight. And we need to be just really talking about the science that's emerging here, and it's new, and it's just coming up. Sexually transmitted diseases happen to go on the rise in areas where they're fracking. These roughnecks and cowboys are coming in, and in North Carolina, North Dakota, where there's a fracking site, they're actually flying in prostitutes on the weekend. So the community, the community is having some issues here. Um, drink, uh, drinking while driving and also accidents are increasing also and these are the public health issues that are happening so I apologize but this okay. really needs to be said
5: All right,
6: thank, thank you very much thank you thank you
1: Tom uh, the Ivy Bookshop is outside in the hallway and they have copies of the books for sale it's a discounted price of $25 and Tom will be outside in the hall to answer other questions and to sign your books
6: thank you thank you again